You guys, it is our 100th episode of the Rise podcast. I feel like there should be like fireworks, uh, marching band music, something cool should happen here, producer Cameron. It's, it's actually pretty insane to me for us to be in this place because I started the podcast, gosh, I don't know, I'm looking at you like you would know, Cameron, um, 2015, no, 2016, like so long ago, back in the day where I would record eight episodes and then not come back to it for three months. I mean, just really had no idea what I was doing. I just felt so convicted that there were not women in the business category. And I was obsessed with the idea that there were not women like me in business who were advising me on business. The only teachers I could find, and I'm super grateful for them, but the only teachers I could find were men. And I just kept thinking of that quote, be the change that you want to see in the world. I think so often We go through our lives and we're like, oh, I wish, like, why doesn't this exist? Or why doesn't someone work with the homeless in my community? Or why doesn't someone do that thing? Or what? And I always feel like when you have something that sticks on your heart, I think it's there for a reason. I think, honestly, that that is your creator. That is God nudging you in the direction that you're supposed to head. So for me, that was the Rise podcast. And I had absolutely no idea what I was doing when I started. Like most things in business, I literally taught myself to do podcasts by watching YouTube videos, uh, just figured it out. Those first recordings were probably really cruddy audio. But we've also, in 100 episodes, had some of the most inspiring people, some of my favorite authors and speakers and teachers in the world. And in today's episode, to celebrate 100 episodes, we thought it would be cool to share our favorites. These are some of the greatest moments and the time that we've spent together. And I hope that you get a taste, if you're new to the program, of of what's available to you in our archives. And I hope that if you've been with us, if you're an OG, if you've been a listener since I first started, that you get to hear some of your favorites The last thing I'll ask is celebrate with me. If you love the Rise podcast, I would so appreciate if you take the time to subscribe and leave a review and screenshot this episode and tell people, hey, they made it to 100. They're probably going to stick around. You should go listen to. I'm Rachel Hollis, and I've built a multi-million dollar media company with a high school diploma and the free information I found on the internet. In the 15 years that I've been building and scaling my company, I have become deeply passionate about helping other entrepreneurs to do the same. So each week, I'll be sharing tangible and tactical advice and inspiring interviews with the same intention. These are the tools to change your life and your business. This is The Rise Podcast. This clip is from kind of a dream interview for me. I had written this down in my journal and hoped for this for years, and that was the opportunity to interview John Maxwell. He has been a longtime mentor and hero of mine, and the fact that I get to know him in real life and get to bring this conversation to you was one of my proudest moments in my career. In this episode, we talked about how important it is to reach for growth. The only guarantee 
that you and I or any of the listeners that we have today, Rachel, the only guarantee that we have that tomorrow is going to get better is that we're growing today. It's the only guarantee. Mm-hmm. In other words, I'm today preparing my future by what I'm doing. And, and I tell people every day, every day you're either preparing or repairing. You're, 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 either, you're either, Rachel, you're trying to fix yesterday and go back and say, oh, crap, I wish I wouldn't have done that. Ah, <laughs> I, I've got to go fix that. You know what I'm saying? We're, we're, either, we're, we're either living today repairing something we did yesterday or because we're learning and growing and improving, we're preparing for our future. And our setup for tomorrow is being done right now. That's why my mentor, John Wooden, would say, make every day your masterpiece. And it was a powerful statement, and it taught me that you've got to make the very best use of today. So when I think of the 15 laws of growth, it allows people to have a a game plan, to understand what those laws are and begin to practice those laws within, within their life. And my life was changed tremendously at 25 when Kirk Kampmeyer at breakfast at the Holiday Inn Lancaster, Ohio, asked me what my plan for growth was. And I didn't have a plan for growth. In fact, I, Rachel, I didn't even know I was supposed to have a plan for growth. <laughs> I, I, mean, I think that most people don't. No, I, in fact, when he asked me that question, I, of course, I, I told him I didn't have one. It, it, truthfully, it never had it entered in my mind. And, and probably for the next six months, I asked all my friends, do you have a plan for growth? Do you have a plan for growth? Do you have a plan for growth? And, and I never had one friend said that I have one. And then it began to hit me that the reason that we are not getting better is because you have to be intentional in your growth. Growth is not automatic. It doesn't come, you know, getting older, that's automatic. <laughs> Dying, that's automatic. You don't need to read a book on death. You know, just one day you stop <laughs> breathing and it's over. So there's a lot of stuff that are automatic, but everything that is automatic, Rachel, is downhill. You can coast on automatic, but everything worthwhile is uphill. And to be uphill, you have to be intentional. And so therefore, it just it was life life changing me when I realized I need to help people become intentional in the area of personal growth. Because they're assuming that because they go to work, because they get back up, because they are are, are every day living with their family or living community life and whatever, they're assuming that they're just getting better because they live. And you don't get better because you live. I know a lot of people they're getting older but they're not getting better. Yeah. One last thought on that. I had, so I started growing. I, I got a plan for intentional growth at 26, okay? And, and every day I, I work this plan and I develop it in my life. And, and for years, I'm teaching leadership, I'm known for leadership, et cetera. But what's really happening is all the books I'm writing are a result not of me teaching leadership, they're a result of me growing and learning and improving and changing. And, and so 30 years later, 30 years later, all of a sudden, I wake up at 3.15 in the morning, and I just say, I've got to write a book on the laws of growth. I've been doing this, and I'm not teaching people how to do it, and there are basic laws that if you just apply, you start growing. And I put my robe on, and I went down to my uh, home office, and I started writing down what I thought would be these laws of growth. And by noon, oh my gosh, what, eight, nine hours later, by noon, I had the laws of growth outline already done. Wow. And then I and then I wrote the book, and now uh, you know, oh, I don't know, but a million people later uh, they've read that book or whatever now maybe more, but 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 they continually come back and say, John, 
That book changed my life because now I know how to personally develop myself. And one more thought, one more thought. The way you develop growth capacity is by growing. It's just like going to the gym with muscles and, and, and physical fitness. You, you, and, and so I'm 71 today, Rachel, and my capacity to grow is ridiculously off the charts. Or to use your phrase, it's stinking great. It really is. It's, just, <laughs> it's, it's, it's off the charts. And, and I'm 71. I'm thinking, I should not be as excited as I am at this age. I, I ought to be somehow you know, kind of on the downturn or, or, or kind of you know, t- you know, just taking a little bit. Of, and, and I'm not... I'm just so excited, and, and the, my companies are doing better, and, and I'm just I've, I'm getting more ideas. And it's all because, it's all because I've developed tremendous growth capacity. And so every day I'm able to apply what I'm learning and, and, and pass it on to others and be a benefit, hopefully a blessing and value to other people. And so growth, personal growth and development has to be intentional but I can tell you it is the greatest the greatest payoff you will have tomorrow is that you intentionally grow today. In this episode, I got to interview one of my dear friends, Chris Chandler. We talked about the importance of connecting with yourself and also connecting with your body through physical movement. Chris believes like I do that if you can change your body, if you can change your physical state, you can change your emotional state. And we talked about how important that is in this episode of Rise. I've been teaching SoulCycle for um, almost four years now. And like, there's definitely been trial periods of like, what works and what doesn't. But the common denominator, like I said before, is like, are you connecting with the person in front of you? And yes, like music matters and like, is your class challenging enough? Is it blah, blah, blah? Do you create a space where people feel welcome? But the connection is what matters. And people want to see, they want to see something to look up to, but at the same time, they want to see humanity. Mm. So in terms of like people that have their own business, I think of this as like the difference between online and retail. The reason why I would go to a retail store is because I would want that human interaction experience where someone's there to help me right then and there. And if they are not connected or in tune with the mission or goal of the business, I will leave a store because I'm like, I could go online and return it and do that. And And so like people could ride a bike at home. People could ride a bike outside, but what would make them want to experience something is the connection that they have with either themselves or the people around them or with me, I guess. How do you... <laughs> that sounds weird. No, 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 no. That's right. real. Right. How do you get better? Because I assume that you're a better teacher than you were a year ago or two yeah. years. So what are the things that you are doing? I'm sure the the company you work for has some um, training, but yeah. are there things that you do to make sure that you're improving and not staying stagnant as a teacher? Yeah. You could easily phone it in and like, do the same flow of playlist, meaning like people will know how your class is structured. I try to keep it so that every single time they show up, it's still the soul cycle experience, but the way that they feel will be different. Or what we do in class is experimental in terms of the physicality of the workout. Um, I try to make sure that like I'm personally learning and growing myself and adding more education into my life, mm-hmm. which is 
another part of what I want to do in 2019. Yeah. I think people would be surprised to understand like the things that happen to people on the bike, meaning I've done classes before where I've just like broken out bawling, right. like had, you know, having a great time dancing, like people really work through. Work through it. And why is that? Is it the physicality of? I think the physicality yeah. is the bridge and the, and the doorway music too. and the music. And That's the key to a good instructor. If they don't like good music or if they don't like the kind of music you like. Right. What? You got to vibe with you gotta it. You got to vibe. Um, and I feel like half your playlist, I'm like, are you reading my diary? <laughs> People wouldn't believe kind of the transformations oh, yeah. that happen, and which I think And especially like is- I am now in the practice of before I go into class saying what I know about myself is true. Yeah. And I think that's something that like you do in your journals of like. Yes. I am this. Yeah. I am this. This is what I want for yeah. my day and writing into the present tense. Yeah. And so right now, the four things that I've been writing is um, I'm joyful. I'm inspiring. Um, I'm a bridge builder. And I'm me. Yeah. And then I put that on a post-it note. And then I always put a blank post-it note to the other side of the keyboard. It's on my computer. And I have a blank because... I can take that and then be open to what is going to happen in the room. Yeah. And whenever I look over, even if I can't see it because it's dark, I know what why that, I'm doing. Yeah. Brad because, was asking me yeah. the other day, he's like, what is your main goal in what you do? And we're like building my website and mm-hmm. stuff like that. And I was like, I want people to connect with themselves so much so that they feel like they can see themselves in another person and then connect with them. Say that, say, unpack that. Like, I want to understand that fully. I think in this day and age where everything's go, 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 where social media will like grip at your attention, where there's all different things vying for a little piece of who you are, that we are so desperate to connect inwardly. And when we have that depletion of not connecting with ourselves, we don't connect with other people. Mm. Did that make sense? Yeah, it did. How, what are the things that you do? I definitely I'm gonna cheese ball because we're talking right. about it, but I I think I get that in a soul cycle class. Right, like that is this sounds um, so cheesy, and people are 100 percent like this will annoy some people. Right, um, and I don't say this in a disrespectful way, but it is a, it is a spiritual experience. Right, it is a it is a it it's whatever you want it to be. Really, it's meditative right. or it's fun or it's a party. But for me, I always feel like it's. Um, 45, uh, 45 minutes of prayer right. set to a Beyonce soundtrack. Of course. Which is <laughs> which, really what I need. Let's be real, it's prayer. <laughs> that's that's what be, we need. Let's get in formation. <laughs> let's, let's get in this formation prayer. Um, that's incredible. Yeah. And, I mean, when you think about it, it's in a dark room. Mm-hmm. It is moving your body in a way that you're uncomfortable with on a bike. And, like, you're vulnerable and exposed. And there's no other option but to connect with yourself. And then it's my job to facilitate an energy in a room where people not necessarily feel comfortable connecting with people because connection is not comfortable, Mm -hmm. but feel like they have the ability to Mm -hmm. connect. I mean, there's people on every different spectrum of it that are like have been bodybuilders or women bodybuilders Mm -hmm. or... um, People that come into the room super shy and have specific weight loss goals. And the thing about it is, is as they keep coming back 
as they keep trusting themselves a little bit more, it becomes less about the weight and more about, like we say, the how they want to feel mm-hmm. and how they feel afterwards. Mm-hmm. And they know that when they commit to themselves, when they carve out the space for them to move their bodies, mm-hmm. that they find more clarity in their life that moves away from an obsession of, this is how what size I need to be. Mm-hmm. This is what I need to... This is the number I need to see on the scale. And it's pretty magnificent what happens when people cross the bridge between this is what I think should happen Mm -hmm. and then this is where I am and this is how I want to feel. Yeah. Because if you're like, this is where I am and this is the number that I want to hit, you're always going to ask for more. And that might lead you down a path that like a lot of people would find trouble with. Absolutely. But if... How I want to feel is a sensation that you're after or a mentality that you're going for. You know what it's going to take to get there. To get there. And you can get there any day of the week. Yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful. And it becomes more of a practice Mm -hmm. instead of a – I don't even want to call it a goal. Yeah. Because I can't remember the last time that I've weighed myself. And I used to struggle a lot with – my own body image yeah. and weight and stuff like that. And especially in the gay community, like nowadays, it's harsh. Yeah. Um, Look, meaning like having the perfect body. Like having this. the perfect yeah. body. Yeah. All of that. And so I think when we move away from an ideal that we think is what we're supposed to be into how we want to feel, that's when like the magic happens. Yeah. yeah. Of like you, it's like, getting rid of a toxic relationship with someone you recognize that you should have been out of a relationship with yes, like weeks, months, years ago. Yes. This clip is from one of the most popular interviews I have ever done. It is still a strong contender for best of all time. And that was a talk I had with my nutritionist, Kelly Levesque. We discussed all things about body and food. And in this particular conversation, I asked her the question I ask everybody At the time, the Rise podcast was actually called Deus. In the old days, Deus was a platform that people would stand on to speak. And so my question for her was a good one. And her answer was even better. I always get up and go to like brew the coffee. And when I'm I'm waiting for the coffee to brew, I pour a big glass of water and I take all my supplements. Mm. So drinking a lot of water, kind of like rehydrating, and and then I'll brew my coffee, have a moment with my husband. That's like a really special time for us where we'll like have a cup of coffee. and It's almost like I will verbalize my goals or my to-do list or my goals or what's going on. And it's probably a little bit of a bad habit, but I will make sure that I don't have any fire drills in my computer or my phone, and then I'll go move. So I like to work out first thing in the morning. I used to like working out at night, but now it like keeps me up. Yeah. I can't sleep. And I also know the research there is a fasted workout. So, you know, I don't have my smoothie until after my workout, but a fasted workout of either coffee or I allow my clients to use fat because fat doesn't ever break down to blood sugar. It doesn't release insulin. There's no, you know, it doesn't shut down fat burning. It can actually be a source of energy. If you're using coconut oil, those MCTs become fast fuel in your body. My coffee is a a cup of hot coffee blended with a tablespoon of coconut oil. If it's a weekend, I might do a bulletproof with a little ghee, but most of the time it's just the coconut oil or MCT oil. 
and then I go to a workout. So I love yoga. I'm getting into Body by Simone right now, which is like a little dance workout, but Ooh. I played soccer, so I'm not very good at it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to be totally honest with you, it's like I, it's, I'm ridiculously horrible at it, but it's really fun. It kind of reminds me of like fifth grade when I would like do dance performances with my little sister in, a gar- in our garage. That's funny. Yeah, I just look for the stuff that's happy. So the yoga classes that I take are vinyasa flow, like pretty hard. I feel really open when I do that. It makes me really happy. If I don't have time, I'll run to a soul cycle class and do 45 minute spin. Always guaranteed to get that in and, and done. And then I have a smoothie. So depends on the day, but I fuel up after I work out just because you're gonna get a surge of human growth hormone and testosterone that helps to burn away fat. You're not, you know, you're not burning the fuel that you just ate. You're really burning into your body, which I think is a I don't think I know is a cleaner form of fuel and is really great for you metabolically. You know, you walk, I have so many clients that are the same. You walk through the airport and you're like, oh yeah, McDonald's. And you're like, when's the last time I had McDonald's? You know, like, and everything that they have is like a Costco sized bag of nuts. Yeah. And so you're like, oh, I'll just make the healthy choice and get the almonds. But like you sit down to like 14 servings and you're, you land in New York and you're like, I feel sick. Yeah. I ate 14 servings of yes. almonds and I watched two movies. Like no one was productive. Yes. <laughs> right. So I would say that that really helps to kind of like calm my hunger. And so I, I would say food yeah. when I'm traveling, like I pack my own food, whether that's a bulletproof bar, which they have these little protein bars that are actual protein bars, not carbohydrate bars. Primal Kitchen does as well, which is more of like a nutty bar, like a kind bar, mm-hmm. which is also like good protein, good source of nuts. Mm -hmm. I might pack a bag of nuts. When I think about going on an airplane, I pack, always pack chopped veggies. Like I can't do that on my way home, but chopped cucumber, celery, carrots, red pepper, like I'll just do a big bag of it because the thing with travel is it's really stressful and stress is going to make you crave carbohydrates, going to make you crave sugar. It's going to make you want a snack. And so on the, on the flight days, the goal is always to have a real meal before you go. Or if you can bring a real meal, like hit the salad bar at Whole Foods before you go or make a big salad or tuna salad or salmon salad at home, like you can bring it with you. Obviously they would take it if it was your smoothie because it's liquid. Mm -hmm. Fuel up before you go and then realize that, okay, if I pack a little bag of nuts and I pack my little bag of veggies and I need a bridge snack because I have a five hour flight and it's just really stressful and I don't want to end up saying yes to the woman walking down the aisle with whatever she has. With the Pringles. Yeah, because think about it. Like, I mean, I get a lot of really good work done on an airplane 55% of the time. And those work days, like when I'm flying coast to coast, I'm when I'm on, it's amazing. But mm-hmm. when I'm not, it's like all the wheels have fallen off. Yeah. So oh, yeah. I think being prepared for the wheels falling off and having a parachute or whatever is really important. How long have you been doing practicing yoga? When I use the proper um, terminology. Yeah, practicing yoga. So I went to a play, a studio called Maha Yoga in 2002 when I was a sophomore at USC. We would drive from downtown to Brentwood and go because it was really fun and really – there was great flow. This teacher named Steve Ross, and he wrote a book called Happy Yoga – he would play Justin Timberlake and Beyonce and at the time like Britney Spears or whatever. And everyone was singing and everyone was flowing and I had never gotten so sweaty, but I didn't feel like it was a miserable thing. I felt like, you know, I could do it obviously because it wasn't like fast paced dance. It's yoga. And so, yeah, I mean, now I look at, I guess I've been practicing for 16 years. That's awesome. Yeah. 
So it's, it's, and, and the thing is, is like I went to two studios before that with my friend Carrie from college who was trying to convince me to be a yogi because she was a ballerina and I had played soccer and I was like, no, I want to run. I want to like feel my heart rate and that's not going to work for me. And she's like, give me a, a chance. <laughs> and she took me to two. I'm like, this is boring and weird. I grew and up Catholic and yeah, I think you're praying at me. <laughs> you know, like I'm so confused. I don't, <laughs> I don't want to chant, you know? Yeah. And, and since then I've like opened my, I'm so open to all of that. But looking back, it's like I had come from like a private Catholic high school and gone to USC and got, and literally she took me to a yoga class where I was sitting on a bolster and like chanting. I'm like, this feels weird. <laughs> it's funny how far you come because yeah. I, I, I now could totally be in a completely silent class where the teacher only speaks Sanskrit and not be weirded out or annoyed. I feel very calm and relaxed, but I do really like, I just want fun. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Uh, so the last question is something I ask every single person and that is, if you could tell the women listening to this podcast one thing, one piece of advice from your knowledge and your wisdom that they would actually implement, that they would hold on to, that they would store inside themselves and accept as truth, if you could only tell them one thing, what would it be? Never live your life towards a destination. Like it's got to be about the journey because mm -hmm. if you don't love the journey, you got to start loving the journey. Like you got to start loving the workout. You got to start loving your day to day. You have to build a life that you love the journey of, because that's when you have the synergy and the passion and like, I don't know, like the vibrations to actually change the world. I think when we're always thinking, well, I'll get skinny for this wedding or I'll get skinny for this date. I'll change jobs after I get my bonus. The, past is the past. The future gives people anxiety, but the present is a gift and you just have to be so grateful. Oh, girl, that is such good wisdom. This year, I had the honor of sitting down with former Vice President Joe Biden, and we had an honest and beautiful conversation about life after grief. If you're not familiar with his story, he lost both his wife and baby daughter and later his adult son. Getting past something like that is almost impossible, no matter who you are or how famous or what work you've done in the world. And his conversation with how you manage grief and how you move on and build a life after loss was one of the most powerful we've ever had on the show. My son, Bo, is all about duty. To him, it was duty. Um, he was, uh, uh, he, he was a bright kid. He was a lawyer. He volunteered as a federal prosecutor to go in the middle of the war in Bosnia to go to Kosovo and help them set up their criminal justice system. I'm going to, this is bragging, but it's, I'm going to brag. He's the only foreigner has a significant military statue built and the only four-lane highway in Kosovo named after him, wow. the Joseph R. Bo Biden Highway, wow. because of what he did, because of what he brought, the peace he brought there. And so he was always, was, and so when, when he got sick, um, he, uh, we, we all made a deal. His brother is his closest friend in his life and his sister adored him. 
we all made a deal that we would never talk about the percentages. He was diagnosed with stage four glioblastoma. It's not, there's hope, but nobody. It's just the amount of time. And so, Bo, um, the point I wanted to make in the book was, I had an unusual relationship with Barack, with the president. When he was an MD Anderson and he got the diagnosis, we all knew what it meant, but Bo called us in the room after the final diagnosis and said, Dad, Hunt, Mom, let's make a deal. No talk of percentages. No talk of percentages. Everybody agree. And the doctors came in, a wonderful, wonderful doctor, one of the greatest surgeons in the world, not just the country. Dr. Sawoya came in, he did everything he could. And uh, he came in and just embraced Bo and said, we're going to have a real fight, but we can, there's still hope. And his, uh, his neurosurgeon uh, and the head of the Department of Neurosurgery, a wonderful man, came in and said, I remember pulling him aside and saying, what should we do? He said, what was he going to do? He said he was going to run for governor and he had no opposition. He was a city attorney general. And he said, well, go home and run for governor. Don't ever give up hope. Just go oh, and try to live your life. Do what you can do. And that's what Bo did. And he, and he wanted to, he worked every single day to finish his term. He went to work every day. He'd go to Philadelphia from, it's about 23 miles to go to physical therapy. And he, was, he had what they call aphasia, mm -hmm. which is losing the ability to recall proper nouns. And uh, he'd go to speech therapy at six in the morning. Then he'd show up in his office the attorney general's office until uh, from 10 until 6 o'clock at night and come home. And he insists that he have a test done once a month to see if his, his cognitive capabilities weren't slipping. He didn't want anybody to think that he wasn't capable of making these decisions because he was losing control of it. Like he'd say, Dad, can you make sure my, you know, uh, uh, my girl... Well, Natalie, his daughter, he couldn't remember the name Natalie, but can you make sure my girl? And, uh, and so, uh, but he made his promise that he desperately didn't want anybody to feel sorry for him. And so he said, anybody asked what we're doing, Dad, he'd say, look at me, Dad. Just look at him and say, oh, he's doing great. He's doing great. Dad, promise me. And the reason for the name of the book is that with about, turns out it ended up being six months to go. Uh, I went home, my wife and I would commute home from vice president's residence on Friday to see him. He lived only, a, the crow flies, less than a mile from us, a mile and a half on a drive. And we'd go over to the house and have dinner with him and then take the kids and things like that. So I went over this particular night, November, and uh, we had dinner, and Bo asked his wife, Hallie, a wonderful person, to take the kids upstairs and then come back if she could, put them to bed. And my wife had gone home to change, and he looked across the table at me, and he said, Dad, um, uh, I know no one loves me, and the whole world loves me much as you do, Dad. But he said, Dad, he said, I'm going to be all right no matter what happens. And it hit me like a ton of bricks that he had come to peace with his death. 
And he said, but dad, promise me. This is not a joke. Promise me, dad, you're going to be all right. I said, Bo, I'll be all right. He leaned across the table and grabbed my arm. And he said, dad, look at me, dad. Give me your word as a Biden dad. You're going to be okay. I knew what he meant. He knew what I was likely to do was drop out. He knew I'd take care of the family. He had nothing doubt about that, but he's worried. It animated my whole life. I would stop. I'd step off the stage, turn inward. And I said, Bo, before I said, Dad, give me your word as a Biden. You'll stay engaged, Dad. Promise me, Dad. And I did. But it was a solemn obligation. In this conversation, I got to chat with the Bush sisters. That's Jenna Bush Hager and Barbara Pierce Bush. And we talked about what it was like to grow up as little girls in the White House. Definitely a conversation I have not been able to have with another guest and supremely interesting for understanding what it's like to manage their lives now as adults. I haven't actually really thought of it in that way. We, as Jenna was saying, we were so lucky that when our parents were in D.C. and when our dad was president, we were 18 to 26. And so at that time, that's really when you're trying to figure out how you fit into the world. And so for me, I got to, I went to six continents with my parents and I really got to travel all over the world. And um, that opened my life up in a way, that type of exposure opened my life up in a way that I could never have guessed and couldn't be more grateful for. And so it also led me to figure out what I wanted to do with my career, which has been working in global health and has been, as I said, very focused on I guess, dreaming about what the world could look like and then working every single day to try to achieve that. And um, and it's been, that's been incredibly fun and also incredibly difficult because health systems are complicated for sure. And I think I, with that type of exposure, it was almost like I couldn't look away. I never felt this fear of other people watching me. That was not ever what, um, I guess I didn't have a fear to act because that wasn't what made me fearful. It was more like, am I making the right choices? And ultimately, you know, there is no right. And I think for me, realizing that global health was what I wanted to work on at a young age was so an incredible gift because I didn't have to wait a long time to figure out my purpose in the world. Um, I got to figure that out when I was young and made plenty of mistakes and continue to in my career. But for me, it was more motivating to think, you know, I want to do this. I don't want this to be on my to-do list forever. That motivated me more than any fear of failure. Um, Because I think my fear of sitting on a good idea and not acting on it was actually bigger than a fear of failure. That's so good. Uh, Jenna, can I ask the same question? Because you have a pretty public life. Yeah. No, I mean, I think think one of the gifts that our parents gave us, which which also helps shape who we are, is that one, they allowed us to see the world and really see the world. As Barbara said, it's such an influential time in our life. So that it'd be hard to just sit back and not take action in some way. So I was a teacher after I graduated from college and then eventually, and and now working at NBC on the Today Show, which was a giant leap and a strange one because 
for many years, you know, we ran quite literally in some <laughs> cases from the media. Um, we wanted privacy and we wanted to be normal. Um, and so to take that leap and believe me, people ask all the time, like, that's such a strange, how ironic <laughs> and how strange. Um, but at the same time, I've always loved to tell stories. I was on my high school, um, newspaper. I loved to tell stories as a little kid. I loved creative writing. Uh, I loved still to write. Um, and I also think because I've seen the world and seen different situations that it's it's a privilege to be able to tell people's stories. I find it that way. I feel like it's an honor. Um, and I also am not one the, the the best gift that our parents gave us that was that we didn't need to live up to some sort of perfection. We didn't need to be, you know, perfect first daughters. We weren't um, at all. And and they weren't they didn't, you know, chastise us for that. I mean, I think mistakes have to be made in life. And, and so I, we didn't, we don't fear perfection. You know, we don't fear that the need to be perfect, neither Barbara nor I do. I mean, I think we both know that we're going to stumble and we both know we're going to fall and we're, we're, because we have each other and because we have parents that allowed us to kind of find our way without making us feel too bad for mistakes or bad really at all for making mistakes. Cause I think that's part of human nature. I'm happy to to be able to shine a light on people's stories. I feel like it's a privilege and knowing that mistakes are going to be made, um, that if they are, I have a great source of support and in my family and, and my friends and that I'll pick myself back up again. And I think that's good advice for anybody out there. I mean, perfection is really boring and (laughs) none of us, you know, I don't, I, I'm so glad our parents didn't expect us to be perfect because I'm not sure how I could be a parent. Um, I would be either guilt-ridden constantly about my own parenting um, or I would raise my girls to feel like that they needed to be some sort of version that's not really themselves because I think perfection is also something we cannot live up to. When I wrote Girl, Wash Your Face, I had no idea how much it would resonate with readers and with listeners in audiobook form. And this was the chapter I couldn't have seen coming. It was the one that so many people sent me emails and letters and wrote me notes and still stopped me in the airport to talk about this idea. If you've never read Girl, Wash Your Face, the idea is that each chapter is a lie, that I used to believe and the lie that held me back from becoming the woman I was meant to be. One of the most powerful lies for you as readers was, I'll start tomorrow. The idea that tomorrow or on Monday or at the new year, you're going to reach for a better version of yourself when the truth is you've got to find it within you today. So I thought it would be powerful to share an excerpt from that chapter. If you want to listen to the entire chapter, it's episode 56. And for any of the other interviews that you heard and want to dig in deeper, they are all listed out in the show notes. I'll start tomorrow. I can't count the number of diets I've tried. I can't tell you the number of times I've made plans to go to the gym and then blew them off. Number of half marathons I signed up for, paid the entry fee for, and then quietly pretended not to remember when it was time to actually train? Two. Number of times I've declared, from here on out, I'm going to walk a mile every morning before work, and then never made it past the third day? 
infinity. I had this habit for years, as many women do. We talk about the things we'd like to do, be, try, and accomplish, but once we get to the moment of actually doing it, we fold faster than a card table after bunco night. Maybe we've created this habit because we were brought up observing this pattern. Magazines and TV shows spend a lot of time focusing on what to do when we fall off the wagon rather than teaching us how to stay on it in the first place. Life happens, and the plans we make fall through. But when it becomes such a regular occurrence that the promises we make hold very little actual power in our lives, we need to check ourselves. A few months ago, I was out to dinner with my closest girlfriends. It was an impromptu happy hour that turned into an impromptu dinner and ended up going later than any of us anticipated. I got home after the kids were in bed, and Dave was already deep into a game of Major League Ball or Hard Hitting League or whatever the name is of the baseball game he's played nightly for the last two years of our marriage without making any real progress that I'm aware of. So I gave him a smooch and chatted with him about his day. Then I went downstairs to the basement where our old treadmill is hidden, and I ran a few miles. I put the evidence of that workout on Snapchat, and later my girlfriend saw it and sent me a text. You worked out after dinner? What in the world? I wrote back. Yes, because I planned on doing it and I didn't want to cancel. Couldn't you just postpone it until tomorrow? She was genuinely perplexed. No, because I made a promise to myself and I don't break those. Not ever. Ugh, she typed back. I'm the first person I break a promise to. She's not the only one. I used to do that all the time, until I realized how hard I was fighting to keep my word to other people while quickly canceling on myself. I'll work out tomorrow became, I'm not working out anytime soon. Because honestly, if you really cared about that commitment, you'd do it when you said you would. What if you had a friend who constantly flaked on you? What if every other time you made plans, she decided not to show up? What if she gave lame excuses like, I really want to see you, but this TV show I'm watching is just so good. What if a friend from work was constantly starting something new? Every three Mondays, she announced a new diet or goal, and then two weeks later, it just ended. What if you called her on it like, hey, Pam, I thought you were doing Whole30. Meanwhile, Pam is sitting in the break room eating a meat lover's pizza and telling you that she was doing Whole30, and even though it made her feel great, two weeks into the program, her son had a birthday party, and she couldn't resist the cake, and then figure there was no point. Now she's gained back the pound she lost, plus a few extra. Y'all, would you respect her? This woman who starts and stops over and over again? Would you count on Pam or the friend who keeps blowing you off for stupid reasons? Would you trust them when they committed to something? Would you believe them when they committed to you? No. No way. And that level of distrust and apprehension applies to you too. Your subconscious knows that you, yourself, cannot be trusted after breaking so many plans and giving up on so many goals. On the flip side, have you ever known someone who always kept their word? 
If they tell you they're coming, you can expect them 10 minutes early. If they commit to a project, you can bet your butt they'll finish it. They tell you they've signed up for their first marathon, and you're already in awe because you know for a fact they'll finish. When this type of person commits to something, how seriously do you take their commitment? I hope you see my point here. Guys, I couldn't have made it to episode 100 if it wasn't for all of you sticking by, listening, subscribing, writing reviews, telling your friends, posting on social. Your support is what makes it possible for us to do this work. And from all of us at The Hollis Company, we are so grateful that you keep listening in.